Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, genetic engineering of crops has been around for something like 25 years. We've seen the benefits for farmers. We've seen benefits for the environment. But innovations have been confined mostly to large-scale agronomic crops, things like corn or soy, canola, sugar beets, cotton. And that's because the regulatory climate is so arduous and expensive that companies can only afford to commercialize big acreage crops, at least using standard genetic engineering techniques. And I know some of you out there are screaming papaya, and yes, Hawaiian papayas are a stellar example of how biotech traits can protect the industry from, in this case, a destructive virus. And this goes way back to the 1990s. The effects of the arduous system have really been felt ever since, especially on smaller horticultural crops. We also know there's a non-browning trait that's in apples, so we know that exists, but that's a really nice example of an endpoint consumer trait. And hopefully they'll do the same with avocados because I want to <laughs> make some guacamole that I don't have to eat all that one first day. But despite these benefits to the farmers and environment, innovations that directly target the consumer really have not been pursued. And that's a bit ironic because the very first GE crop was a tomato, a product that really failed where it mattered. That is in winning consumer hearts and minds and appealing to consumer preference. It didn't deliver on what it set out to do. And unfortunately, kind of changed the tone for approval of these like regular old horticultural crops that most of us consume whole on a daily basis. So today we're going to go back to the future as a tomato has passed some levels of deregulation and may be available in the United States very soon. Today we're talking about purple tomatoes. So today's guest is Professor Kathy Martin. She's a professor of plant sciences at the John Ennis Center in Norwich, England. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Martin. Hi. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me. I've wanted to have you on forever, mostly because... I've known of your work my entire scientific career, and you have so many interesting projects that are going on in the laboratory that have really important applications, whether it was you know, tomatoes that were genetically engineered to combat Parkinson's disease or, or you know, so many different projects that are happening. So thank you very much for joining me about Purple Tomatoes. <laughs> it's really a pleasure. Yeah, this is great. So for many people, this invention of a purple tomato it's a solution looking for a problem. And can you give me a synopsis of some of the claims of connections between these purple plant pigments and human health? I think that it's hard to claim that there are absolute slam dunk experiments that demonstrate the health benefits of anthocyanins. We're talking about a food here or their content in foods rather than treating them like a drug. So but it, there was certainly, before we started the, to make the purple tomatoes, there was certainly evidence that purple 
fruits uh, and red fruits, which also contain anthocyanins, had health benefits. And that's uh, from the idea that berries are very good for you. I'm sure everyone has has seen some of the data supporting the consumption of be uh, berry-rich diet. Uh, and of course, there's uh, even an institute in North Carolina devoted to, to blueberries, I think, and the health benefits of blueberries. So, um, yeah. And I think that one, actually, one of the experiments that we did when we first described the purple tomatoes gave some actually pretty direct evidence of the health benefits in that when mice that were prone to cancer were fed, their diets supplemented either 10% dry weight with purple tomatoes or 10% red tomatoes, the cancer-prone mice live 30% longer on the, on the purple tomato supplemented diet. So this was one of the first experiments that really could use foods, isogenic foods, to, to, to show a health benefit of a particular compound. And the field has grown since then. Yeah, when you say isogenic, you're just comparing the ones that have the genetic change versus the exact same tomato missing that genetic change. Absolutely. that's what, And I think that that was an innovation in the field because nobody really did. I mean, people went down and bought food from the market, <laughs> which is not <laughs> so. And they compare maybe best a red cabbage with a, a, a green cabbage. But yeah, we actually knew that they were genetically identical except for the production of science. Oh. Yeah, so this was this was an apples to apples, oranges to oranges, tomatoes, tomatoes, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so but if we look away from the human health benefits and talk about the potential influences on the plant itself, if you are overexpressing genes or changing genes in a fruit, how does that affect things like yield or maybe disease sensitivity or maybe an aspect like uh, post-harvest quality of the fruit? Okay, so there's two answers to this. The first was that we were smart and that we wanted to make the just the fruit purple. So we used a, a specific promoter that would just switch on the anthocyanins in the fruit because we didn't want to have a major impact on all of the rest of the metabolism that's going on in the plant. We knew from preliminary work in tobacco that if we made very high levels of anthocyanins in, in the whole plant, it could really severely impact growth, mostly because the plants didn't get enough light. And so they were very bad. So we switched it on just in the fruit. And because the promoter that we used directs the synthesis of anthocyanins very late in fruit development after all of the fruit, it doesn't really impact yields at all. So it's just the switch right at the end. You have to imagine that a fruit is a sort of, it's an open system in that if it doesn't have enough intermediaries to, to do its final metabolism, it can import more from the rest of the plant. So no, no effect on yield. What was completely unexpected in the second half to the question was that we found that the high anthocyanin producing tomatoes were much more resi resistant to infection by petroleum. So that's gray mold. And also that they had a longer shelf life. And this seems to be associated with the antioxidant or free radical scavenging properties of anthocyanins. So they have double the shelf life. So that was a an unexpected bonus. Well, one of the mistakes I made here is I didn't ask you what are the specific pigments? And and so let's start okay. out with, well, what is anthocyanin? We've mentioned it a few times now, but just for people who maybe are from animal biology, what is this stuff? So this stuff, it's, it's basically, they're basically derived from phenylpropanoids. They're, we might call them polyphenols. They're, they're a type of 
flavonoid if you want to become even more specific in terms of biochemical classification. And they are the pigments that color most flowers and some fruits. So they provide the blue, purple, red colors in many, many plants. So the red in strawberry fruits and the red in roses and almost most of the most common pigments in higher plants and in our crop species as well. They're present in red cabbage and in eggplant and um, trying to think of more. <laughs> all the berries. <laughs> all the grapes and uh, yeah, purple grapes. And, and they come in, in quite in different chemical structures. So, and this affects their, their, their color. So the, the slightly different chemical composition, if they make red pigment or if they make a purple pigment, or the, and the, all the blues that you see in nature are also due to anthocyanins. There are some other red pigments in plants, so it's relatively minor, especially for flower color. Yeah, so anthocyanins are a class of molecule where there's different versions of anthocyanins or different modifications on that basic skeleton yeah. that dictate the final color in the specific food. So, yeah. And also maybe they're antioxidant properties or bioavailability? The, the, there are lots of arguments about bioavailability. They don't hang around long, long in, once you've ingested them. They can be detected in plasma at anthocyanins about four hours after consumption by humans, but they disappear pretty quickly. And so there have been hypotheses that they don't work as anthocyanins. It's their metabolites that are the active components in promoting health. I'm not sure that that's exactly true. I think our understanding of how health benefits work has expanded enormously since the contribution of the microbiota, that's the gut microbes in your gut, how they behave, they modify their a lot. And we know that anthocyanins can impact the composition of the microbiome. So if you eat a lot of anthocyanins, you have a different composition, which is high in what euphemistically called good bacteria. And these, these may promote better metabolism of, of your, the food that you digest. So part of the mechanism may be before they're even absorbed. But yeah, they have, they, so the bioavailability is generally reported as low, but they are metabolized to acids, which have antioxidant properties too. And it may be that they don't have to be actually bioavailable to have a major impact on health. Okay, that's really good. I, so if we talk about the genetic engineering of the purple tomato, <laughs> we can go back to, you know, I've, I've studied purple pigments for years just because they are outputs of light signaling pathways. And I've studied light my entire career. And we've, you know, always talked about chalcone synthase and chalcone isomerase, phenylalanine, ammonium lyase, all the enzymes of, of that pathway. How is the purple one made? Like what is the enzyme or what are the enzymatic steps that were added to shunt more of substrate into this purple, into a purple tomato? Okay. So the purple pigment that is made, made in the purple tomatoes is also made in other parts of the plants naturally. So if you don't water your tomato plants, you'll see that the leaves start to look a bit stressed and go purple quite often as they do in my greenhouse. So, so tomatoes can make purple anthocyanins through all of those enzymes that are naturally in the genome. The only difference with the purple tomatoes is that they don't have the 
transcription factors that induce the in the anthocyanin biosynthetic pathway active in the fruit. So what we did was we added genes encoding these regulators, the switches that switch on anthocyanin biosynthesis so that they were switched on at a very late development stage in the fruit, in fruit ripening. Okay. So these are normally present genes that are even obviously in the fruit because they're in the DNA, but you're using a different control mechanism to turn them on late yeah. in, in, in plant, in fruit development. Yeah. And the, you can see it. So the germplasm of tomato has some natural variants where you can get purple skinned tomatoes. And this, these, this trait is caused by the same transcription factors in wild species of tomatoes. I think it's a Solanum chilense and Solanum lycopersicoides that have, that are able to produce anthocyanins in the skin of, of their fruit because they don't make red fruit. So generally, the red lycopene is exclusive, is mutually exclusive with the production of purple pigments. But through integration, some varieties like indigo rose and sun black have been produced by bringing in genes from wild species, which encode transcription factors that switch on anthocyanin biosynthesis, but just in the skin of the tomato. So what we've done is exactly the same trick, but done it by genetic modification. So we've, and now we're able, by using the specific promoter that we use, we're able to make anthocyanins throughout the fruit so that there's really a lot more anthocyanins than in any integration line that can be produced. That's pretty neat. So what is the bottleneck in anthocyanin synthesis that's opened up, or is it a whole series of steps that are opened up with this transcription factor? I think it's just the it's just the the transcription factors that regulate anthocyanin biosynthesis in tomato are expressed at pretty low levels and generally only under stressful conditions. I mean, anthocyanins are used to protect from light stress, as I'm sure you're aware, and so they filter out the the light in the visible range. So when plants are stressed, then light stress becomes even more of a problem because of photooxidative damage. So. They're produced in leaves to protect the photosynthetic machinery underneath. Oh, very good. So <laughs> this is all pretty cool stuff. Was this done just using a standard transgenic approach or was there? Yeah. So this, was done, this, this work was started back in 2003, I think. We saw our first purple tomatoes back in 2004. And the objective of that project, which was a consortium project working with a number of people in other groups in Europe, was simply to increase the antioxidant capacity of tomatoes. And that was for health benefits. We were planning to do some studies, which I don't think ever got completed on the first project that we did, but we were just, and my contribution was to say, well, I think we can make more anthocyanins in tomato fruit. So it was purely an academic uh, exercise, <laughs> remarkable outcome. And I think the power of an image is <laughs> <laughs> it's very well it is very powerful that's what the whole exercise taught me no it's very beautiful fruit with all of this in mind does it affect flavor because so many flavor compounds or a number of flavor compounds anyway come off of spurs of that phenylpropanoid pathway yeah no actually anthocyanins have no taste at all so unfortunately i can't claim any a beneficial taste they because they extend the shelf life the the tomatoes at a at any particular time are a little bit less ripe 
than than a regular tomato. So you they might taste slightly underripe or if you were to pick them very early, but they go on to develop a full flavor. Oh, very good. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Kathy Martin. She's a professor at John Innes Center in Norwich, England. And we're speaking about purple tomatoes and all of the buzz that they've gotten in the media. It's pretty exciting stuff. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra, and we're speaking with Dr. Kathy Martin. She's at the John Innes Center in Norwich, and we're talking about purple tomatoes. And it's hard to open a new browser in the internet without seeing pictures of these absolutely beautiful fruit. And the funny part is, if you go into Twitter, you find criticism of a purple tomato. And and I, I've always been responding by saying, yes, next thing you know, they're going to do it to eggplants. <laughs> you know, um, so I've seen your talks over the years, and there's so many potential uh, benefits from this, but the ones that you were showing specifically by looking at rodent models gave some hints as to how they may be affecting physiology. And you mentioned a little bit about this in the beginning, but can you talk about some of the trials that have been done on observations of different physiological aspects of anthocyanin-enriched fruits in rodents? Okay, so what one set of experiments that's been done has been to look at the effects on weight gain in mice that are fed a high fat diet. So this is a model for obesity, and it's found that if you consume large amounts of anthocyanins in either in the purple tomatoes or in blood orange juice, or I think it's even been done with purple corn, which are all rich in anthocyanins, then the gain that occurs on a high fat diet in animals is is minimized so it, it's reduced sometimes in at high doses it may even be completely eliminated so there definitely seems to be an effect on on lipid metabolism and weight gain but whether that's translatable to humans or not we don't yet know all of these experiments require collaborations and i've been actively involved in some of those we took, we've taken some of the studies for on P53 knockout mice to try and identify mechanisms. And we've also looked at inflammatory bowel disease in terms of something that might be very immediate in response to anthocyanins in the uh, GI tract. And I would say now looking back 15 years, really, probably the impact of anthocyanins on the composition and functioning of the gut microbiota are maybe the most important mechanism. But always remember that these are not like drugs, they're foods, they're complex matrices. They probably work in, in synergy with other components and they probably work by multiple mechanisms. So we mustn't think of them having just one target. They may have many targets, which will be of varying degrees of importance. Sure. And then that makes sense because, you know, if it was just anthocyanins themselves, it would be, you know, a, a pill of pigments or drinking yeah. glasses of wine. That, 
don't worry, those have been tried. I mean, the <laughs> horrible idea of a red wine pill. <laughs> well, the funny, you know, wash it down with a glass of wine, right? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's a better solution, personally. personally. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Uh, the, the funny part about this is that, well, not the funny part, the part that really reinforces what you're saying is when we what we know about glucose and glycemic index in response to different different foods that have the same amount of different sugars that can be converted to glucose but present in different bioavailable forms like locked inside matrices which really make them more available to different parts of the gastrointestinal tract yeah. Yeah. so so that may be what we're talking about here with tomatoes too is it's is that really the thinking that the that a tomato is an appropriate vehicle for maybe delivery to the place where a microbiome exists. Yes. I mean, I think, I think that we have reasonable data to suggest that the anthocyanins, for the, in the case of an inflammatory bowel disease, that the anthocyanins can change the, mic the composition of the microbiome so that it benefits those bacteria that don't produce or release allergens that cause further inflammation. However, you know, it's still, it's so complicated to investigate this and you're dealing with, with yeah, very, very large data sets that I can't give you a precise mechanism for any, any effect, but for sure, just look on the internet and you'll see how many people swear by a high anthocyanin diet. No, very good. And all of this happened in a complex regulatory climate. When we look either in the States and in England or EU, they're very different in terms of how these things are regulated. And so how has it navigated regulation recently with USDA and really what's next for regulation before this becomes widely available? Okay. So originally, so back in 2008, when things started off, we decided that we would like to try and take this forward to a, a product for consumers. And I think that at that stage, we, we, we formed a little spin-out company, but we certainly didn't have the hundreds of millions of dollars that were broadcast to be required to get USDA approval. And so we were thinking on the lines of maybe we could do something in the US whereby we got FDA notification for a product that, that could then be sold so that it was no longer a genetically modified organism, but we wouldn't have to, we could always grow the, the tomatoes as a field trial. So we wouldn't need USDA deregulation to grow them outside. Okay. So that all changed when, when the secure rule came in and it seemed that we would be able to get, or at least apply for de deregulation, deregulatory status from USDA APHIS because the trait was not a, a cause of concern for the environment or a pathogen. And that really facilitated us being able to put in an RSR and do it without spending the impossible amounts of money that the multinationals have to pay to get their, or had to pay in the past to get their products deregulated. So that's really been the big change. We still want FDA notification. So we've had an application under review for two and a half years, and I'm hoping that they haven't found any major safety concerns associated with the tomatoes. And when that, when we get the final decision from them, we'll be able to go forward and provide seeds, hopefully Firstly, for home growers, I like the idea that the most enthusiastic supporters of this are people who grow tomatoes in their home. 
gardens and I'd really like for them to be see see whether they like it or not I'm not trying to force this trait on anyone but I think it would be great to, for people to be able I think it's beautiful I think they make great salads and hey they might be good for you too so. <laughs> well that's a really nice invention and, and that, I guess that was one of my questions was you spent how many years developing this thing and now is it essentially if somebody buys the tomato can't they just take the seeds and then grow their own or even sell your yeah. seeds yeah they can do that you know what happens when you take your own seeds from tomatoes you can go on growing them from self seeds but they, the tomato plants i mean the the best ones are usually hybrids and they do start to fail after a while so i'm hoping that it wouldn't <laughs> that, that, that we have we have the trait patented as well as you have to do and our wholly owned us subsidiary norfolk healthy produce will be taking it forward i think first of all for consumers for home growers and then if people like it then we'll we'll look to develop things on a bigger scale but yeah it's it's very much I mean, it's a, it's a story of an academic actually take, taking something all the way through to commercialization. Okay, it's not in the UK, so there's slight bitterness to this bill. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's really very gratifying to be have been involved all the, at all of the various stages and, and to see something that you hope could be of benefit to society. And if people don't like it, then they don't have to buy it or don't have to grow it. So I'm absolutely fine with that. Choice is what I think is important. Well, we're kind of then just waiting for FDA clearance then at this point. So that's yeah. the big that's the big hurdle at this point. Yeah, I hope it's not a big hurdle. We've had many very constructive conversations with FDA, but of course they've been very busy with other matters, COVID in particular. So I perfectly understand why it's taken quite a long time to get a decision. But I hope that they'll be able to see that this is really, really quite a good thing to come through. And it was a great pleasure that our RSR was the first one approved of all of the ones, which I'm sure there's a huge backlog, but that was really nice as, as was number one. Well, I guess my last question is to you as a scientist, but you know, also somebody who is working not just for the public good in terms of advancing the, the research and making good journal articles and thicker textbooks, but you want to make some very positive impacts. And so how do you view the issues of regulation, either in the EU, in, in the UK, in the US? You've, been, you've invested how many years in this now? What is it, 17 years in this project? Yeah, seven, maybe. How frustrating is it as a researcher to want to do the right thing for the right reason and have a regulatory climate, maybe a social climate, that isn't accepting of the good work you want to do? I'm not, I'm not so, so self-absorbed that I think that, that everyone has to, has to embrace this. I, I very much believe in choice, but I know that everyone who's ever seen the tomatoes or, or I've talked to about them has been really interested to try one. <laughs> I just like, and I, I, the frustration I think you just have to be very patient. I don't want to, I want to do things right. And I do get very frustrated when, when people in Europe say it's illegal to grow, <laughs> to, to sell GM products. It's not illegal to do, and you can sell them in certain parts of the world. And the, the advantages of biotech 
are available in certain parts of the world. And I'm hoping that the tomatoes could actually be a good example for consumers to make up their own minds about it rather than being told that they're dangerous or that they're, they're, they're yeah, that they're, they're, or even that they are the product only of multinationals and the only people that patent benefit from it are the people that hold the patents. This was not my motivation at all in doing this. Well, we can see information about this everywhere online right now, just through any particular news channel. But if people wanted specific information about the tomato, maybe your laboratory, where should they look? They should go to the Norfolk Healthy Produce website, which is called www.bigpurpletomato.com. <laughs> Bigpurpletomato.com. All right. I love it. Oh, wait, tomato. <laughs> Sorry. From no, tomato, tomato. It does. It's really funny. I have a friend who auditioned for a part and his job was to sing that old song. You know, you say tomato. I said, but he was a little younger and never knew that original song. So he went up there and said, you say tomato. I say tomato. <laughs> Yeah, so well, I slip. I, I slip from one to the other, but I know it should be talking to you. It should be tomato. No, you you do it like I do metric system, and I, so, yeah, I got it. You know. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Kathy Martin. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And let's talk about some other projects in your lab sometime. Yeah, that would be great. I've really enjoyed it talking to you again, Kevin. And thank you very much for listening to another episode of Collabra's Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews on iTunes. Share this episode. The Purple Tomato is making quite a splash, and it would be very exciting to be able to see it penetrate into gardens everywhere so people could be more excited, not just about an exciting, healthy fruit, but potentially the technology that made it. This is Collabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.